Welcome back to the IWSCC podcast, where we uh, talk about all things supplier diversity. Uh, my name is Deidre Guy, and I am the uh, co-founder and president of the Inclusive Workplace and Supply Council of Canada. And what we do sort of typically is we support disabled and or veteran business owners in Canada. Um, so it, this uh Broadcast is brought to you by Pod Supply, and if you happen to be watching this on YouTube, then uh, ASL Interpretation has been provided by Maple Communications. And I'm super happy to uh, introduce you to my friend Brad Broman, uh, that I've known and had the privilege of knowing for the last five or six years. Uh, fantastic sense of humor. He's always up to something new. Uh, he's so innovative. I love what an ally he is to the disability community, how much time he's spent uh, researching and, and learning all about it. Uh, and so much dedication to it. So uh, without further ado, we'll start chatting with my friend, Brad. Brad, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who is Brad Broman and, and what are you up to? What do you do now? Thanks, Deidre. No, I appreciate the introduction. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have uh, I have been in this space for a while, but we'll go back a little bit. I, I grew up in British Columbia, just outside of Vancouver, a small town called Squamish. Went to university in Victoria and then went to university in Kingston, where I did a law degree at Queen's. Went back to Vancouver, decided being a lawyer wasn't so much fun and veered off into a whole <laughs> bunch of different things, including working with the government of BC, where I worked with the premier's office and cabinet for quite a number of years and then migrated out to Ottawa on a, an exchange. They called it a executive interchange or something like that. Ended up in, in Ottawa, where I was actually born, strangely enough, and oh. uh, with our kids and ended up just staying, you know, like you do often with families, you you find your place and, and you stick around. So here I am, came out here in twenty in 2001 and have been here since, and working in, in the federal government and then in the private sector, and then now in a a combination of my own company, which is a consultancy that does a lot of different things, as well as working for not-for-profits and other organizations in and around Ottawa or in Ontario, and just keeping busy working with people I like, people that are trying to do interesting things and have some fun doing it. So the whole family came to Ottawa from, from uh, BC? They did, actually. Our kids were all adopted, and we actually adopted another Kid when we got to Ontario. So we have five kids here, and one of them actually was born in, in uh, Toronto. So the rest are oh, all from great. outside of Canada. So. Right. That's right. I actually, I always love hearing about the things that you and your family are up to and friends are up to. It's always something. Uh, so share a little bit more. Yeah. I know you're quite well traveled. Share a little bit uh, about sort of the real Brad Broman and family life, hobbies, that sort of stuff. The inside scoop, open sure, the kimono. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so been married forever. And in the course of that, we uh, we adopted uh, five kids. The first three were all born in the U.S. and were adopted from different places in the U.S., um, different situations, different families, all that kind of stuff. Uh, one from Texas, one from Georgia, and one from Pennsylvania. And we adopted oh. those kids all when we were living in Victoria. And then the fourth one we adopted, he was from a city in South Africa called Port Elizabeth, which you should Google this because they changed their name under the rules that are going on down there around 
changing in names back to their indigenous original root okay. names like they're doing in Canada. Uh, but good luck trying to pronounce it. It's impossible. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. It's a Kosa word. So Kosa is the largest sort of tribe, tribal group in, in Southern Africa. They're an offshoot of the Zulus. And a lot of their language is the, the Kosa language. And even Kosa itself, which is spelled X-H-O-S-A, it's a click sound like Kosa. So the X okay. and the H forms a, a click sound. So the new name of Port Elizabeth, where Charlie, my son, was born, is a click click plus Kosa sound. So it's hard to pronounce. you got to learn it. Anyway, so, yeah, we've had a good ride with, with all these, you know, crazy kids and having fun and growing up. And there's in five our, in total. Five in total. So the fifth one five was total. born in Toronto, and uh, we adopted her when she was one. And she's been with us since 2004. And so, yeah, we've got a range of kids. They live all over the place, uh, mostly in Ottawa or around Ottawa. One lives in Montreal, and they're all growing up now. And, and are they, has anyone sort of followed in your footsteps in the type of work that you're doing? In terms of adoption or in terms of work? Work, yeah. Or adoption, frankly. <laughs> well, the ado- well, I'll tell <laughs> you a quick story about the adoption because it's quite interesting. When we adopted our second son, uh, he was adopted from an agency based in Georgia. So he was born in uh, Savannah, Georgia. The adoption agency was in a city called Thomasville, which is just on the Florida-Georgia border. So we worked with the, the government and the agency and so forth to bring uh, Joel home. And after that, there was another couple that had adopted a, a son from that same agency, through that same agency. We got together and met with some other families that were interested in adoption. And we said, well, this agency is great. They, their system is really good. Their processes are really good. And the government seemed to like them. So let's work with them and we'll come up with a, a game plan. Well, fast forward like six or seven years from the time that we adopted our son, and there's there were when we left Ottawa or when we left Victoria to come to Ottawa, there was like a hundred kids have been placed from this one agency. They came up to BC. Wow. They met with the government. We hosted them at our place, and we used to have parties at the beginning with with everybody who'd adopted from this agency. There was like two, then there was six, and then there was eight, and it oh. went from there until the last time we did the event. It was like in a hockey arena in New Westminster. It was crazy, right? But yeah, so we got to know all these families and it was wonderful. Like, and all these kids are, they're all kids of color. Almost all, 100% of them are African American. And so we also got to share how do you raise a transracial adoptive family, right? And it's right. not, it's not, it's not the regular process, right? So that's been a great experience for us. And, and open our eyes to issues of equity and inclusion that I think carry forward many years later into the world of disability and and accessibility mm. and inclusion in that space. Um, there's a there's definitely a lineage between doing adoption and raising kids of uh, different color, different um, heritage, and different country to what you go through in terms of uh, making the world 
safe and, and welcoming to people with disabilities. That's called yeah, a segue. That, that makes sense. That's a segue. Yeah, paper. well, it is. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> it's like you read the questions ahead of time. Yeah. I'm impressed. <laughs> that doesn't always happen, as you know. <laughs> so, so yeah, on top of that, but but certainly expound on that a little bit more. But what what has brought you to the accessibility space? Because you and when we spoke about this, I'm going to share that Brad was like, I don't know if I have anything to talk about. I don't have a disability, um, and so you disclose that you're, you're not disabled and of course you have a lot to talk about but but so you know a lot of times those of us with disabilities get into this space because we have a disability and you know we, we're empathetic to try and make change yeah. for others what has led you to do that same work without actually having a disability yeah so i mean i think going back to what we were just talking about I, i've always been sort of oriented in that direction um i remember years and years ago when i was a little kid um my mom had bought me a book. It was the first edition of the Guinness Book of World Records. That's how old I am. And in that book, one of the first sort of pictures and, and stories was about the, uh, that was about the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City where Lee Evans and uh, Tommy Smith or uh, uh, John Carlos had, had uh, raised their fists uh, when they were given the medals on the, in the on the podium mm. and it was right, a yes. it was a response to the racial inequalities of the United States at the time and they were going through that was the summer of of um, uh, race riots across the United States 1968 and I think that it sort of woke me up to the world of inequality you might say and mm. particularly with with blacks but also with others. And it sort of just kind of carried through. When I was at law school, I remember a lot of the work I did was in and around Indigenous law and how do you incorporate uh, an Indigenous view of the world into a legal framework of a common law country like Canada that's based on the British tradition. It doesn't really fit, but it kind of did for me. And so it just kind of carried on. Every, every sort of stage of my life, there's been an introduction to that kind of sort of framework, you might say. And so fast forward to, you know, working in disability space, I, I had a, a, a very good friend of mine who worked with uh, Rick Hansen after he came back from his uh, Man in Motion tour and worked with him for a number of years. And, and Rick was transitioning into a different um, sort of uh, passion, you might say, from spinal cord research into accessibility, which was his sort of second um, passion in and around the, the people that he dealt with. So uh, my friend was leaving the foundation to go uh, work for, as the president of BC Colleges in, in BC. And he said to me, you know, would you be interested in stepping into my shoes and working with Rick? I said, I, yeah, I don't know. I got a lot going on in Ottawa and this. He said, listen, I already told Rick about you. He wants to meet you. Go down to Toronto, meet him. <laughs> what could it hurt? I said, okay. So I go down to Toronto. Didn't really know much about disability, at least in depth. I knew obviously about equity and so forth. And, uh, Rick started talking about, you know, what do you think if we go, if, if I go into space and, and I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. I'll, I'll help you do that. 
So, you know, Rick is a, obviously a Canadian hero and a charismatic guy. And so I, I went to work with the, with the Rick Hansen Foundation back in 2015, worked for them for three years and, and really got immersed in the world of accessibility, disability and inclusion. And really, um, from one of the great, greatest advocates and, and spokespeople and pioneers of this whole world of, of inclusion and, and how do you build a, 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 a real country that recognizes all of these things. I'd, I'd been in that space for a long time through race and through sort of indigenous stuff, but this was another whole angle and, and I just really, really took to it. And while I was working with Rick, I met tons of awesome people, including, you mm-hmm. know, Jeff Wilson from Adaptability Canada, Mayan Ziv from Access Now, and just a whole host of amazing Canadians who are, are pushing this, this agenda forward. And, uh, after I left the foundation, I returned to some of the people that I'd met and had really come to respect and thought that I could continue to do uh, great work with them, including Jeff from Adaptability and Mayan from Access Now. And to this day, I'm working with both of those companies and a number of others that are trying to make a difference, you might say, in this world. It's, it's, you know, the, the disability space is the last of the equity groups to really get fair attention. And it's taken decades of people pushing and pushing and pushing, including Rick. Uh, and I think that I've just been the beneficiary of that in terms of picking up and trying to help where I can uh, and knowing full well that all I have is my empathy and my understanding and my commitment to understand. Uh, I don't live with a disability. And so I sometimes feel like a bit of a fraud, a bit of a, a hmm. bit of a, you know, and we all go through that imposter syndrome. But I've just tried to really uh, immerse myself in, in learning from the people that I work with, the community that I participate in, and, and just take from that. Never stand up and say, you know, I live with a disability and therefore I just try to help yeah. behind the scenes and do what I can. And so it sounds like for the most part, the organizations that you've been with, there's been some mindset or some lens, some focus on inclusion, not necessarily disability, but definitely inclusion. Did, did you find that working in inclusion and in that space, is it is it always a positive experience? Have you had, well, what's that been like? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it around a little bit and I'll say, when we talk about disability and accessibility in the context of inclusion, we're more likely to get to a better outcome. So if you just talk about accessibility, well, historically in Canada and other places in the world, that's meant can a person with a physical disability, presumably in a wheelchair with some major sensory disability like blindness or deafness, can they navigate safely in the, in the, in the physical world, in the built environment? And it doesn't take long for you to realize that that doesn't really address the problem. That's a, that's a start. It's not a bad start. And it took a long time to even get to that start. But inclusion puts you into a different realm of vocabulary and action 
that really is about how do I make the world welcoming? And not only how do I make the world welcoming, how do I take pride in making the world welcoming? And that's for me, when you start to shift out of, let's just do the bare minimum, which has been the history of accessibility, particularly for people with disabilities. Let's just kind of make sure the person can get into a place and maybe get around a place, and that's about it, to something that is more embedded in everything we do. And that's when things start to change in terms of the conversations you have with companies or the conversations you have with government, and you can put it on a different level that is, I'll call it, more equal to the conversations that, that, that have been you know, underway for decades with, with women, with racialized groups, with the LGBTQ community, and with Indigenous peoples to, to bring everybody into a welcoming place and actually feel that that welcoming place is actually a better place for everybody, not just for the people that are quote unquote, mm-hmm. the, the, the people in control, you might say. Mm-hmm. So has it always been a, has it always been a positive conversation? No, because not everybody gets it. Not everybody understands it from that perspective. It takes a, it takes some education. It takes some empathy and it takes some effort. And I think that we're getting there. We're seeing it. Obviously, federal legislation around disability is a start. And it, mm. it's, it's changing the conversation. It's changing the dynamic. But we have a long, long way to go in this country to making that part of the unspoken, known way in which we do business. Yeah, it's it's there's that layer of stigma that's just always in the way, and and so many myths surrounding folks with disabilities, uh, and so difficult to try and solve those myths. Like there's no one route to doing that. Uh, it'll be great when we get the sort of world that doesn't require organizations like IWSEC to ensure that folks with disabilities get better access to business opportunities. Um, yeah, that will make a big difference, but that's going to be quite some time. And unfortunately, it seems to always be led by legislation, I guess. We, we have to kind of force people into it. Would you agree? Yeah, there's no question. And in the U.S., they did that, you know, in 1991. And it's been down there. I mean, arguably, America's got a different culture around these things. They tend to... Um, be more litigious than Canada. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they have legislation and then immediately it starts to be litigated and the the actual legislation starts to take on a life of its own through litigation. Canada tends to be a little bit more um, collegial in the way they do these things. So it might take them longer to do legislation, but they typically do better legislation, if I can put it that way, or more complete comprehensive legislation that thinks through a broader array of of issues to resolve so in canada it took a long time to get legislation it was until 2019 Mm. but the legislation itself is quite promising um and it does point in a direction of where we want to go as a country but again there's a tendency for companies and even the rest of government to kind of 
wait and see. So even with the new legislation, we're seeing this quite a lot where companies and um, and uh, the rest of government, the federal government in particular, that has an obligation to meet the the obligations of the uh, of the legislation are like, well, we'll just wait and see what the government says, what the government makes us do. There mm-hmm. are very few companies and and levels of government out there that I've met with, very few, that are actually saying, you know what? We know where the legislation is going to go. We want to get there before someone tells us we have to get there. Mm-hmm. So there's there is a bit of a hesitancy in, in Canada. I've seen this not just for this legislation. I see it with, I'll use a different example, but it illustrates the same issue. In Canada, we have a healthcare system that is federally regulated, but it's delivered by the provinces. So there's a sort of a, a joint accountability. And Health Canada will approve a, a new treatment, let's say. And then there's an organization that will approve whether or not that treatment should be reimbursed by the provinces through the insurance programs that all provinces have for covering healthcare costs. And uh, the provinces don't have to wait. If Health Canada approves a treatment, say a new cancer treatment, provinces can immediately agree to reimburse it. But often they'll wait because there's this third party that sits in between that will say yes or no. And if they happen to say no, they're pending more research, more trials, whatever they might, whatever their decision process is, the provinces will very rarely, if ever, take it upon themselves to fund it because they've got, they've got somebody else that's saying no. So now we don't have to say yes. They don't have to. And I think that that's, there's a bit of that going on in the, in the disability space in response to the federal legislation is, we know it's coming. We're just going to kind of wait until someone really puts mm-hmm. the screws to us, right? And I think that that's not great. I think that it it takes it's it takes companies like Adaptability Canada and Access Now to take that legislation and animate it with uh, people's stories, with a narrative that is personal and human, and then give those companies or those government agencies a really good reason to not say no, because the default is to say no until you absolutely have to say yes. And when mm-hmm. you do that, a lot of time can go by. You know, that's re- why the Americans had legislation in 1991 and we didn't get it till 2019, even though we knew, Canada knew, Canada's following all the same stuff that the rest of the world was following from the U.S., but the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1991. Mm-hmm. Nothing since in Canada. Lots of studies, lots of effort. But so it just tells you that sometimes it's, it takes a long time. I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, you know, companies like Adaptability Canada and Access Now can tell the story correctly and can help orient, uh, the country uh, but the government still continues to have to step up to uh, make it uh, difficult for people to say no, right? I feel like there's so much opportunity for so many different lines of business to be a leader in this space yeah. and to really shine and to really capture 
that whole market because we know what are the stats now? We're like 22%, 22.5%. We're, we're edging on 25% of folks have disabilities in Canada, and that's reported disabilities. So right. there's probably a lot more that aren't reported for various reasons. Right. And, and so those people are in your workplace, they're in your employee base, they're in your customer base. And I just feel like if you knew that you could take, you know, a market share of that size simply by extending better inclusion and accessibility, which we know is going to make it better for everybody in the right. place, like why not run with that? And yeah. what do you think the reasons are why people, why companies don't see that opportunity and run with it? So I think there's a few reasons. Number one, it's complicated, mm-hmm. and in the in the world of disability, it's particularly complicated by the fact that there are a lot of different kinds of disabilities. Right? Um, you've got yeah. physical disabilities and visible disabilities that we are familiar with. Somebody is in a wheelchair, or they need some mobility device. They have a challenge getting around, and you've got people that are uh, low or no vision. And you've got people that are deaf or hard of hearing. Those are the kind of the generally recognized disabilities. But when you start to talk about invisible disabilities, neurodiversity, cognitive disabilities, the autism spectrum, and so forth, that gets, it gets complicated, right? And, and it takes a lot of work to understand the implications of trying to include all of those types of, um, conditions and situations and people into your, let's say, the built environment, or you add into that the workplace, or you add into that customer service, or you add into that the technology that people need to use and how they use it. And I agree with you, Deidre, that dealing with these things makes the world a better place by definition, but it's complicated. And I think so. I think one of the biggest barriers for companies to sort of take a uh, a risk on this is that it's complicated. They need help. They don't really even know mm-hmm. where to start sometimes. They don't know the yeah. language, the vocabulary. They don't know the technical issues. You know, building a, a building to be welcoming to people with both visible and invisible disabilities, it's not an easy task. You need experts to help you, and there aren't a lot of experts around, to be honest. So that's one barrier. The second barrier is a perception I'm not going to say reality, but a perception that doing things, doing accessibility well is really expensive. Mm. And I want to kind of break that myth because it's not. And there's been studies done that suggest that particularly if you start from um, a new build perspective, that the cost to make a place incredibly accessible and inclusive and welcoming and inviting is zero. It's about planning and yes. thinking ahead and doing it properly from, from the, from the drawings up. So that's a myth that I think needs to be uh, disputed. Yeah. If you're going to have to renovate a heritage building in Ottawa, like the parliament buildings, yeah, it takes a little bit more creativity and probably will cost a little bit more for sure, because you're mm-hmm. dealing with existing infrastructure and, um, things that were built at a time when people didn't think about this stuff. So I get that. I get that. But don't don't use that as the use case to say we can't do anything. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there so that myth, I think there's a myth that that doing accessibility well costs a lot. 
The third part is that I think that there is a bit of, like I talked about earlier, just a kind of an inertia that comes with this kind of quasi-legal framework that we're working within around accessibility as part of the building code, as part of the you know accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act. There's different legal regimes out there. Um, and people are kind of waiting, just waiting to see what happens. So there's a bit of a built-in inertia. Let's just wait and see what happens. We don't want to be out there too far because, you know, we might not get the benefit of it. Um, but, you know, honestly, once you get into the room with some of these organizations, companies, government, they get it. There's, it's not that they don't yeah. get it. It's just that there's, they need to be given a really good reason to proceed. And sometimes that reason is economic. You'll get more customers. You'll have a happier workforce. You'll have a happier whatever. Um, or you have to do it on the basis of, you know, it's coming. It's better to be, um, it's better to sort of future proof your building. And do it now while you're doing other stuff rather than wait and do it incrementally because it'll cost more. This is a, a way mm -hmm. to save costs in the long run by doing it now. So we have to get in the room and have those conversations. As legislation comes into place and then people are going to start to like panic retrofit and prices are going to go up because, you know, suppliers are going to be like, well, you have to do this now. Yeah. Like it makes so much more sense to do it in a, in a, a targeted and measured approach early on. Right. And what do you think? Yeah. It, it, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, like, you work with a, a company like Adaptability Canada, which does this kind of work a lot. And and oftentimes, and it's very practical, right? You, you look at the the building or the or the, the portfolio of buildings, and you're able to point out what things ought to change, what things are safety-based, what things are legal, what things are this and that. And I think that you can go from there and say, okay, Let's make it practical. Let's make it achievable. Let's put a plan in place. It may be a five-year plan. And that way mm -hmm. you can work with the client to say, it doesn't have to all be done on day one. Uh, number two, it, it can be um, done in the course of other things you're doing anyway. You might be changing the, the configuration of your building. Let's just do it right with accessibility in yeah. mind from the beginning. It doesn't cost you anything more. So you you... You have to work with the client to help them see the path forward that isn't so daunting, so intimidating, and so costly, right? So bringing this back to uh, IWSCC, and of course, we have a focus on inclusive workplaces, as you know, and that's very, very important to yes. us. But I'm also interested in your thoughts on barriers to inclusion in the business world for disabled business owners. Yeah. What yeah. do you see as, as barriers to inclusion? for those business so, owners uh, in the business world. So my, my response is going to actually be broader than that because I think that the same things that prevent mm. uh, diverse supplier programs from being successful uh, for women-owned businesses, Indigenous-owned businesses, I think that the, that the disability-owned business sector has been late, you know, late to the, to the, to the dance, you might say, uh, but the issue is the same for all of the equity groups, to be honest. Uh, the same kinds of barriers exist. They just are a little more acute for disability-owned businesses because they're not as well known. 
But the mm-hmm. barriers really come down to, again, it's how do you, it, the problem seems overwhelming, right? I don't think it is because I think that most of the, of the uh, diverse suppliers that, that I'm aware of, they're just another in a long line of small businesses trying to get a little bit of business from bigger businesses. Big businesses, the, yeah. The, the, object, yeah. the objective is more or less the same, whether it's levels of government or large corporations. But here's where, where I think, at least in my experience, with disability-owned businesses and with people with disabilities that translate into disability-owned businesses, the creativity and the resilience and the persistence that has to be in place for you to even open a business as a person with a disability, let alone um, figure out how to navigate the labyrinth of procurement in large companies or in the government, it takes it takes a special kind of person. And, and for that reason alone, it's worth having a chat to figure out how they can work with those people. Governments mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and procurement is obviously a complex area. Governments and big companies have a hard time um, looking at their their spend and doing it in a way that 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 the procurement people can be safe in saying yes I I entered into a contract with company X or or partner Y and I'm not going to get fired because I know they're pretty well known. It takes mm-hmm. a little bit of guts and and courage and understanding and maybe a bit of homework to understand that you could break that contract up and have it delivered by some unbelievably talented smaller mm-hmm. businesses that are just waiting for a chance that don't necessarily show up in these you know large subcontracted contracts where I think so I think there's a courage factor safety factor in procurement people don't get fired for entering the contract with big six consulting companies they just don't, even though those companies may be charging a lot more or may not yeah. be particularly creative necessarily, or may not even get yeah. to the heart of the issue that you're trying to solve, it's safer. And I think the biggest barrier is safety. That sort of mm. takes a bit of courage mm-hmm. to look at your spend and go, let's do it differently. Let's think about yeah. it. It takes a lot of courage. And it takes some homework and getting to know these suppliers so you know what they can deliver, you know what their capabilities are. So I think that's a, it's, it's the same for all the businesses, but it's more acute for people with disabilities. With disabilities, yeah. What do you think we're still not focusing on as yeah, a country it, yeah. when it, as it relates to disability? What, what is missing? Well, I, I don't think we're, we're making the effort to understand what people with disabilities bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Whether it's neurodiversity or whether it's creativity or whether it's, like I say, resilience, that you have to wake up every day and navigate your world and be problem solving all day long. Um, bringing that to the workplace, bringing that to problem solving, bringing that to the problems of the workplace, I think is highly misunderstood and unappreciated or underappreciated. You know, we're doing research together uh, on accessible procurement 
yeah. your organization and, and IWSCC. Yeah. And I'm I'm looking at some research that was done by uh, WBE Canada, which is the uh, Women uh, Support Supply Council organization, uh, one of them in Canada, and it talks about the you know the top ten reasons why the corporations that they they surveyed uh, take on a supplier diversity role and and program, and none of it has to do with the actual sort of return on investment, the better services, yeah. the, you know, the, the better price points, the innovation. It all has to do with corporate social responsibility and good yeah. citizenship and, you know, mirroring your employee base and your customer base. Yeah. But there is so much value in these suppliers and that's being missed. It's being missed because it's just totally not included in yeah. the, the, the thought process behind even getting involved with disabled suppliers. Yeah, and we find that too uh, in the work we do, both with Adaptability Canada and Access Now, where I, where I advise, and that is that um, the work of the disability community is seen as, as, as mainly a charitable a activity. It's a charitable effort. Mm -hmm. And yeah. in trying to um, speak to businesses as an equal, as a another business, business to business, saying we have an amazing group of people, amazing products or services, and we just need a shot, and we will impress you, and we do. Um, mm -hmm. Just getting that shot, getting that that shot can mean everything, and it can allow that company to go, oh wow, that those guys bring some real strength to the table. Yeah. And yeah, but again, I don't want to say that's just exclusively about people with disabilities. I know that people of in course. any small yeah. business person has a lot of resilience, creativity, and effort that goes into what they mm -hmm. do. It just happens to be, I think, a little more acute uh, in the disability community because of other biases, I think, that exist within uh, society about people with disabilities that they aren't capable, that they their disability is going to get in the way of their showing up at work on time or being a good employee or all that stuff. That all stuff's all those myths have been busted, but yeah, it persists. You know, they do. Yeah. So last question: If you had one wish and only one, and it had to do with disability and accessibility, what would you wish for? Wow. Well, I think I think it goes back to you know getting that shot, right? to be able to prove um, the incredible capabilities of people with disabilities and, and, and disability-run businesses to add value, to add to the fabric of our country in a way that is unexpected and delightful and amazing, to be able to see how people with disabilities navigate their world and what they put up with every day that most of us wouldn't put up with for one second. Um, you know, just get just upping our empathy a meter, our understanding meter, our education meter, to uh, to put ourselves in the in the shoes of people with disabilities. I think it would change everything. I totally agree. I totally agree with that. And thank you, Brad. It turns out you had all kinds of things to say, and I feel like I want to go longer. So we'll have to have you back. Uh, I'd I'd like to bring. Uh, you and Jeff uh, back to talk about accessible procurement. So um, we're looking at yeah. scheduling a couple more of those sessions in 2023. So hopefully you'll agree to be a part of that. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, I, I, I love so much of what you had to say, and I knew that I would. So thank you once again for, for doing this and taking the time.
Oh, thanks so much, Dave. We appreciate what IWSSC does for disability-owned and veteran-owned businesses. It's great. Thank you. And thanks, everyone else, again, for joining us today uh, for more supplier diversity content. You can check us out at iwscc.ca. You can find us on YouTube or listen in on your favorite uh, podcast platform. We have new episodes every two weeks or so uh, and, a, and a ton more going on. So be sure to follow us on social media uh, for all of our updates. Thanks once again for being here and we'll see you next time. Merry Christmas. Yes. Happy holidays for everyone. Merry happy Christmas. Holidays, Thank you, yeah. Brad. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, folks.